0: Malachi chapter 1 this evening. Let me invite you to turn there. Malachi chapter 1, last book in your Old Testament. We conclude with the last of the minor prophets and the most recent of the minor prophets, Malachi. And I think he gives for us a very relevant argument for why we ought to follow God. The entire book is I believe about that, about turning back to God. And so hopefully as we study through it, you will find some value in, in uh, its wisdom. Have you ever felt as if God were far away? Remember God, You, you promised that you love me? Well, based on what I'm looking at right now, it doesn't seem like that is true. Where is that love that You have promised to me? I graduated from a Christian high school in Ypsilanti, but there were several unbelievers in my class. Out Of the 21 that graduated, I would say there, there could be up to a dozen who were unbelievers. And although I was far from perfect, I was generally serious about spiritual things. I wanted to do the right things, but many of my friends had little concern for doing what it was right. And yet, those same friends seemed to be receiving all sorts of physical blessings. They were enjoying all of their their pleasures and, and I seemingly was enjoying nothing. They got to listen to rock music. I got to listen to Patch the Pirate. One of my friends had had a Camaro and I occasionally got to drive my brothers and sisters to school in a station wagon. They had money that... They didn't even know what to do with. They had so much sometimes seems like that was my perspective. Never had to work a day in their life, and I had to have a job, and all my money went to my parents. That's probably not an accurate statement, not all of it. but but you you understand that there's an injustice that I felt that 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 these people were seemingly living for the world and not for God, and I was supposedly living for God and not for the world, and yet. Didn't seem like God was there. Didn't seem like there's a whole lot of love being poured out on me. All the blessings are on them. Perhaps you felt that way before. I hope you understand how shallow that thinking is. It's very nearsighted. It's looking on the the here and now. But the reason I'm telling you all this is because there are times when I there were times when I felt like like God was showing His love to them and not me. And I would often think, well, what's the point? Why go through such such struggle to be godly if, if there's no value in it for me? My focus was on myself, obviously, wrongly. And, um, and it seemed like that if they're not going to be judged for their ungodly behavior, then, then what's the point in me working towards my godliness? Well, you know, the people of Israel had a similar sort of feeling uh, at this time in history. And that's why I think God has Malachi write this book at this time. About 400 years before Christ comes for the first time. They had a similar question. Their question was, God, do You really love us? Do You really love us? And if so... How is that love displayed? Because it doesn't look like you love us very much. Alright, let's read about that in Malachi chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We'll read down through verse 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this. And you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. We must praise God because of his love. I think that's the point of this these first five verses here. We must praise God because of his love. Malachi, the the prophet of Malachi begins the prophecy of Malachi begins with verse one, an introduction. And that is an oracle of the word of the Lord. An oracle is simply a pronouncement. We've seen this before in Zephaniah and other prophets. Simply a word from the Lord. It's it's calling out one's voice to make a statement on behalf of God. And so this is what Malachi was, was commissioned to do. To speak to the people of Israel. It's time for you to listen to what God has to say. And what we'll find in this book of Malachi is that, the, that they will have six disputes. We'll break those up into mainly six sermons. We'll actually take two for one of them. But mainly uh, there, there are, primarily there are six disputes. And here is the structure of each dispute. You'll see this as we go through each uh, week. First, God makes an assertion. God makes an assertion. Look at verse 2. You'll see this assertion that he begins every dispute with. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then the second dispute begins in verse 6. So let's look down there. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord. So every dispute you're going to find as we go through, we won't look at them all now, but they all begin with an assertion by God. God makes a statement. And then the second part of the dispute is a question from the people. God anticipates what they would respond with. He anticipates their objection to it and so He voices their objection. Notice verse 2 again. We see the assertion, I have loved you, says the Lord, and notice their objection. But you say, how have you loved us? See, God already knows. He already has in mind how they're going to object. So every dispute is going to be like this. See this in verse at the end of verse 6. Okay, God says, The Son honors His Father. Beginning of verse 6, then the end it says, But you say, How have we despised your name? Okay? So every single dispute is going to be just like that. You start with a, a statement by God, an assertion, and then a a uh, an objection by the people a question from the people and then finally God's response in the rest of the the section and you see that beginning with verse the end of verse 2 says was not Esau Jacob's brother yet I have loved Jacob and have hated Esau and he goes on to explain why he has really loved them we'll talk about about this specific one this dispute today um, you see the same thing in in verse seven. Okay, the people had asked, "How have we despised your name? What are we doing wrong against you?" And God answers, "You are presenting defiled food upon my altar." So if you if we see the structure of this, the reason I'm taking time to show you this is if you see the structure, will help you to understand as we go through each one how they're all down, broken down. That, that that we have an assertion by God, a question from the people, and a response by God. And this helps to um, formulate God's uh, thoughts on, on the matters at hand. Now, Malachi was written around 435 B.C. And primarily, it's a message of hope in time of despair. Now, what we're going to find is that this book is filled with rebukes against the people for not coming close to God. In fact, later on, he's going to say, return to me and I will return to you. And And there's all sorts of of judgments or statements about their straying from God. But primarily, what we'll find, turn to, to chapter 4, verse 5. You notice that, that there, this is a, a message of hope. God does begin with, with explaining His love for them like we'll see tonight. and Then He moves to rebukes for their wrong behavior and their failure to follow Him. But He concludes really with hope. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. Israel was supposed to recognize that, that there was hope amidst their struggles, despite all the struggles that they had in life. Now, what we need to understand about this, this small prophecy is that is the background. What was going on in Israel at this time? Okay, you, you remember at the beginning when we first started looking at the prophets, we saw in Obadiah and Joel that the, that the exile was still far away. The captivity of Israel and Judah was still future. Then we get to prophets uh, that, that are coming nearer and nearer. And we didn't look at Daniel because that's considered a major prophet, but Daniel's actually written during the exile when they are held captive in Babylon. And then you get to the other side. And that's where we're at now. We're at the other side of the exile. They've come back. They've started to rebuild the temple. Remember Hag- Haggai, Zechariah? They're, they're starting to rebuild the temple, get back on on track with what God wants for them. Lots of hope. In in the last book, we looked at Zechariah and and God saying, listen, you have oppressors, but but I'm coming down there myself in the form of the Messiah. I'm coming down there to wipe out your enemies. And so now Israel has this hope. They're, They're excited that although it seems like they're being oppressed still, they're still very small in number, they have hope. But when they look back on their recent history, they start to question God's plan. They start to think, well, where is God in all this? I mean, what's the point in really, in really going all out for God? If, if I mean, look what He's done for us the last 50 years. He, he put us in captivity. I mean, what kind of plan is that? I thought He was going to bring on this great uh, era for, for Israel. And so as a result, Israel was focusing on what they had lost. They thought that that this turnaround was going to be quick. That God was going to just all of a sudden bring in this Messiah and and resurrect them to the best place in Israel's history. And after all, they had heard these promises from Haggai and Zechariah. But Malachi wants to reinforce this idea that that there is hope. Don't don't fret. Don't give up on on, on doing what is right. Before God gives this hope, however, He's going to lay down some rebuke to them. You'll see this pretty clearly as we go through. Um, not today, but starting next week, we'll see these rebukes that God has for them. And He wants to show to them that, listen, you are not living right. Now, before He gets to those rebukes, He begins here in chapter 1, verses 1-5 through five, with a message of love. Okay, So, imagine yourself as a parent of a wayward child. You want to give them hope that they can be restored to a right relationship with you, but before you can give them hope, you need to rebuke them for what they're doing wrong. Get off the wrong path and get on the right path. But even before you rebuke that child who is wayward, what would you do to them? Show them that you love them. And this is what God does here. He begins at the very uh, start of this prophecy with a message of love. He wants to show that He is sovereign over all things. He's got it all under control and that He has a covenant relationship with Israel and that He loves them, not Edom. Not this other city, this wicked city who had plundered them and who had treated them wrongly. So that is the man and the prophecy that we see in verse 1. Now let's look at the message in verses 2-5. through The message is God's love for His people, or we could say God loves His people. Verses two through five begins with a declaration. Okay, this assertion that is at the beginning of every dispute, and it is this: verse two, "I have loved you." I have loved you. God simply begins with a statement, "I have loved you." So, what we, the natural question that we would ask is, "Well, how have you loved us?" What does your love look like? What, where is it being shown? And that's exactly what God's going to get to at the end of verse 2. So they bring up this question the second part of the verse. They say, how have you loved us? You say you love us, but how is that? How do you, how do you show your love to us? Now, before we answer that question, which we'll, we'll see, God will answer that for us. Why would these people feel unloved? Weren't they at the center of what God was doing and on the earth? They were God's chosen people. Why would they feel unloved? Perhaps it was the humiliation of the exile. I mean, they had been telling all their neighbors and friends that hey, our God is the God of the universe and he can do as he pleases. And yet they get taken into captivity. It doesn't seem to fit with a with a sovereign God, a God who's in control of all things. So perhaps it was the humiliation of the exile. Perhaps it was the slowness of the development of post-exilic uh, Israel. In other words, after the exile, it didn't seem like anything was happening. It didn't seem like God was doing anything. Where is this Messiah? Where is this uh, rise to prominence that Israel is supposed to have? And so they questioned God's love. God was supposed to bring this Messiah and yet, nothing. Nothing is happening. Is God even there? Does God even care for us? It doesn't appear that He does. So as a result, we'll see later on in the book, we're not going to be committed to His commandments as we once were. We are not going to kill ourselves to do what God wants us to do. We'll we'll do the rituals. We'll do the the bare minimum. We're not going to do anything more. We're not going to make it a lifestyle to follow God. If God loved them so much, Israel perhaps was thinking why would we have gone into the exile in the first place? We were in captivity for over 50 years while Edom, this supposedly wicked city, this wicked city that God supposedly hated, is enjoying all the benefits of Israel's failure. Where's the justice in it all? Do you ever question God's love? Or do you question God's love now for you? God has made some promises. Yes, He's promised me many great things. That He's going to do some great things for me in the life to come. But sometimes it seems like He's not there. And so as a result, like Israel, I'm just going to go through the motions. I'll come to church on Sunday. I'll go through the rituals. I'll do enough to appease You, God, but I'm not going to make this a lifestyle because it's not worth it. It doesn't appear that my my service of You accomplishes anything. We'll talk about that more next week. But what God does here in the second part of verse 2 all the way through verse 4 is He proves His love to Israel. He proves His love to Israel. He begins by showing him His choice of them. His choice of them. Look at the end of verse 2. Yet, I have loved Jacob. Let's uh, actually go up a little bit farther because the answer to the question is really in the form of a question. Look at the middle of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So here's the the basic response that God has for their condemnatory question. How have you loved us? You have not loved us is basically their point. You have not loved us. And God's answer is, yes, I have loved you because I chose you and not Esau. I chose you and not Esau. Now, what we need to answer here is why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose Israel? Because it says clearly in the middle of the verse that Israel and, and Esau, or Jacob and Esau, were brothers, and yet God chose Jacob, Israel. And He, and he did not choose Esau. In fact, it says that He hated Esau. Now, so why did He do this? But before we can answer why God chose Israel, we need to answer when. So turn back to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. This takes us all the way back to the beginning of this, this rivalry, really. Genesis chapter 25. We need to find out when God chose Israel. So let's think to God's choice of Israel over Edom. Which two nations... Were represent or, or are the fathers of these nations, which, or which two people are the father of these nations? Israel and Edom. right? Israel is Jacob's name. It was, Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. And Esau, it was the father of the Edomites, the ones who lived in the mountains, not too far from Jerusalem. And so we have these two nations at war in, in many senses with each other. And at the very beginning are are these twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Let's read about them in Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Okay, so when did God choose Israel over Edom? Or when did God choose Jacob the younger over the older? The end of the verse says that God told Rebekah about this before they were even born. So God chose them before they were born. Notice verse 34. Because we see that Esau was not that great of a character. Verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Was it because Jacob was more lovely than Esau because we see here clearly that Esau despised this birthright from God which he should have loved. So if Esau despised it then maybe that means that Jacob was more lovely but turn to Romans chapter 9 because God's choice of Jacob over Esau had nothing to do with with his love for God. Romans chapter 9 Romans chapter 9, verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and not, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy." According to verse 11, what are some reasons that God did not choose Jacob over Israel? Notice verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born. So the very first thing we have to understand about God's choice of Jacob over Esau is not because of something that they had done in their lifetime. Because clearly in Romans 9 and even in Genesis 25 we see that God chose them before God chose him before he was born. So it was not something that Jacob did in his lifetime. In fact, we also see that it was not because of any works he had done. Verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. It wasn't based on anything that they had done. So it wasn't like God said, okay, let's see how Jacob and Esau play this out. See who loves the birthright more. Then I'll choose him. God says, no, I chose Jacob, before he was born, before any one of them, did good or bad. They were both unworthy in my sight, but I chose one. The answer to when God chose was before they were born. So on what basis did he choose? That's why I read verses 14 through 16. Did you notice why God chose? Look at the quotation from the Pentateuch here in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The basis of God's choice is His own mercy. He simply shows pity on one over the other. So, then the the response could be, and and in fact, Paul recognizes this potential uh, question that may come up, the response could be, well, that doesn't seem fair. How can God choose one over the other? That doesn't seem fair at all, and that's why in verse 19 he brings up that question. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? If God has it all planned, if God has elected everybody before before they were born, then how can anybody do anything of their own free will? How can that be possible? But Paul responds in verses 20-26 through by saying, listen, God is the potter, you are the clay. How can the clay ever say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Why did you make me as a vessel for dishonor as opposed to a vessel for honor? What's going on? Would a piece of clay, a lump of clay, ever say that to a potter? And this is Paul's point. Why should we ever question God and His choice of us or of someone over another. We should not question him in a condemnatory way. God chooses some and not others for the sake of his own glory. Ours is not to question, but ours is to submit. And in fact, the choice of God is not on the basis of our would be faithfulness to him, but really as a product of his love. He, he pours out his love on some over others. Deuteronomy 7. Verses seven, eight talk about uh, God speaking to Moses, speaking of Israel, saying, "Listen, I didn't choose you because you were greater in number, or because you were more powerful than these other nations, because you were more attractive. There was nothing special about you, Israel." Let's uh, look down to. I just turned away from there, but actually, Romans chapter nine, verse twenty-two. Because when we recognize that we were not chosen because of anything that we had done or anything we would have done, what it does is, Paul tells us in verses 22 and 23, it highlights God's grace. Let's read verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Paul says, listen, if you want to question why God chooses one over the other, you don't have any reason to question, but let me try to give you a response to that, even though that's an illegitimate question for you to condemn God in that way. What if God's doing it just to display His grace? That... He chooses out of all of the unworthy people who are destined for an eternal hell, He chooses some out of there. Paul says, you know what that does? That highlights God's grace because none of them deserved it. And that's why in Malachi 1, 3 and 4, he talks about his hatred of Edom. Before we turn back there, however, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. And Notice verse 22. Notice why God acts on Israel's behalf. And this is something that God often does. Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Why does God take one nation And in our case, one group of people and set them apart from the rest of society so that He can glorify His own name. And that's why God answers in Malachi 1. Turn back there with me. Malachi 1, verses 3 and 4. He answers by saying, My choice of you is shown in my rejection of Edom. (coughs) Excuse me. My choice of you, Israel, is proven in my rejection of Edom. Verse 3, But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Jacob and Esau were brothers, but God put His electing favor on one. And as a result, Jacob became a part of this significant role in human history. Now, there was nothing in Jacob that was more lovely than Esau. That's what I tried to show you here. And there's nothing in Esau that was more despising for him than than was in Jacob. God simply chose one over the other. The Edomite kingdom, which by this time had experienced God's judgment to some degree, we saw this in uh, the, the book of Obadiah, they they would not be revived. They say, according to verse 4, that although we're beaten down, that means we've already been judged, we're going to rise up again. We're going to rebuild our territory. And God says, no, you're not. Because I love Israel, I am showing you my hatred for you. And so you will never rise again. And so as Israel watched all this, they should have praised God and recognized their favored status. If they would really recognize what was going to happen to Edom, if they really would have believed what God was saying, they would have recognized their favored status before God. Now this is more than God loving Jacob a little bit more and loving Esau less. I mean, Notice the strong contrast here. He says, I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. These are strong terms. In other words, I have loved Jacob or Israel by making them a part of My people and I have hated Esau and I am actively opposed to them. I am actively opposed. That's the idea of hatred here. The idea is that that Israel has survived the conquest, but Esau, Edom, would not do so. They would not survive. And so God's point to them is, listen, don't worry, Israel. I've chosen you. You're, I'm on your side. They will not escape judgment. They have what, what we could call irreversible disfavor from God. By contrast, Israel would be restored. They would receive great favor and through their, rest, and through their restoration, great, uh, a great man would come. The Christ. And although their restoration was going to be delayed, it was going to come. This is the problem that they had. They didn't see it coming anytime soon, and so they felt like God was far away. But God was trying to show them that, listen, I love you, and my love for you is shown in my choice of you and, for, and in my purposes for you. Now, one question that we need to answer before we uh, conclude this passage is, is to answer the question, does God love the non-elect? Because based on this passage, if this were the only passage we ever read about people who are not chosen by God, we would understand that God only hates the non-elect, the people who are not chosen by Him. So the question we need to answer is, does God love the non-elect? Does He love them? And And I would say to you that the answer is both yes and no. Yes, He does love the non-elect because from the the Old Testament, there are several places where we see that God is slow to anger. We begin by seeing that in Exodus. We also see that in Joel and other places. God is slow to anger and abounding in what? In love. Even to the non-elect. In John 3.16, we read that God loves the world that He gave His only Son. Now, is that just speaking about those whom He has chosen? No, that's speaking of all of mankind. God loves the world, all the people of the world. And in fact, 2 Peter three nine says that He desires all to come to repentance. He doesn't wish that anyone would perish. So in that sense, God does love the Non-elect, but we can also answer no, and we should answer no based on the scriptures that God does not love the the non-elect, that that He hates, like He hates Esau, the non-elect. Psalm chapter five, verse five, it says that God hates all those who do iniquity. Okay, in our day we've heard this phrase that that God hates the sin, but He loves the sinner. Okay, but but Psalm five five said he, says that He hates the sinner, so. So there is a sense in which God pours out his hatred on those whom he, whom he has not chosen. That's what he's talking about here with regard to Esau and Edom, the people of uh, Esau. So how do these work together? Because what we can't take away from this is that God is some sort of schizophrenic God where He, you know, one day he's, he's loving them and then another day he turns on them. What's going on here? Well, love can be defined as a disposition to seek the good of someone else, uh, to seek the good of someone else. Does God do that to the non-elect? Does God seek the good of someone else? We would have to say, yes. In fact, second Peter three: nine again, He desires that all comes to repentance. He seeks their good, He desires that it happen. Hatred, by contrast, can be defined as opposition to the values and plans of someone. So it's opposition to the plans and values of someone. Does God do that to the wicked? Yes, God strongly opposes them. That's what He tells Edom here. He says, listen, you're trying to rebuild, but I'm not going to let you. I'm going to oppose your plans and your value. Perhaps the best way to to try to mesh these two together, that God both loves and hates, is to look at God's hatred and love of us. Okay, Now, you need to understand what I'm talking about because, because God does have both a hatred and a love for us at some point in our life. Before we were saved, Ephesians 2 says that we were objects of God's wrath. We were objects of God's wrath, that we were His enemies. Don't see a whole lot of love there. But at the same time, we are also part of God's chosen people. And so as a result, even before we had come to Christ, He also showed a love for us, didn't He? By giving us time to come to Him. So in that sense, God both loves and hates an unconverted person. He opposes him and prevents him from doing what is worse in his life. But He also... Uh, gives time to, to allow His blessings to come to them. Now, God's hatred is not one of His attributes. In fact, if we did not have a fallen world, God would never hate. Do you realize that? God's hatred flows out of His holiness. The fact that people oppose Him, God has to have hatred against sin. But on the other hand, love is a part of who He is, is it not? In fact, First John talks about or, or states explicitly that God is love. This is the essence of who God is. It's one of the things that, that makes God God. That He is a loving God. Whether He, uh, whether fallen cre- creation were here or not, He would love. And so that is part of who God is. So God, throughout eternity, is passionately opposed uh, towards evil. So, God both loves and hates the, the, the non-elect. Um, he, in fact, we even see that God shows His grace on His chosen people. He also shows His grace, His common grace, on, on the non-elect. He shows, However, the difference between His love for the non-elect, the wicked, and the elect, the chosen, is that God shows a special measure of grace to them. 1 Thessalonians one four, Paul says, knowing brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. Romans eight thirty three, who can bring a charge against God's chosen one? Ephesians one five, we were predestined as uh, adoption to sons, or or to adoption as sons. So there is a special sense of God's grace that we receive as God's chosen one. So, so there is is a sense where. Where the wicked are both hated and loved by God, but there's a, but there's also a sense where we are loved even more by God, and that's what's happening here. God loves His people Israel more than He loves. In fact, He hates Esau and opposes them. God has a special love for the elect. And by the way, that hatred for that that He had for you before you came to Him has gone away because all that hatred was poured out upon christ at the cross so you don't have to fear that oh if i mess something up then god's going to hate me or something notice verse five because we need to conclude here the reason for god's love the reason for god's love your eyes will see this and you will say the lord be magnified beyond the border of israel israel was far away from from making this statement God be magnified even beyond the borders of Israel. They were far away from making a statement because their focus was on the here and the now. And they were focused on their own circumstances and their own frustrations and their own seeming uh, or or having their future being way too far away. Their oppressors seemed to be winning and God saying, listen, this is why I love you. Because I want to exalt myself. And I will do that to you, Israel. I will do that among you. You're going to say one day, God be exalted in all the earth. See, God is exalted when He demonstrates His sovereignty. All men will share in that joy. All men will share in praising His name for His greatness. And that is why God loves His chosen people. So Israel is discouraged. They're supposed to be at the center of God's world. And yet, they seem to be far away from it. It seems as if God is not there. They were still small in number, still coming out of the oppression of Babylon. And, And Malachi begins this prophecy by reminding that God loves you. Now, there are two primary things that I want us to understand and draw out from this passage to learn for ourselves. Number one, there will be times in life when it feels as if God does not love you. There will be times in life when it feels as if God does not love you. Maybe you feel like that right now. And the answer really is the same for Israel as it is for us, and that is we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and off of our current circumstances and look beyond ourselves and to the future, what God has promised to His Word, to what He has done for us in the past. See, Israel, they they were looking at their past, yes. They were just looking at the near past. All the things that they were going wrong, the exile, the captivity in Babylon. And they forgot all the wonderful works that God had done for their people over the years, bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them to the promised land, giving them great and precious promises. And they had forgotten those things so the answer for us, when, when there are times when we feel as if God does not love us, we need to get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, and start putting them back on God and on His promises, on what we have in store for us in the future. Because your present circumstances are not the sum of God's love for you. If, if this is the only way that God ever showed His love for you, it's based on what you're currently receiving right now, then, then perhaps that's why you think that the way that you do. That's why you question God's love. It's because you think that God only loves me as long as He is giving me something. As long as He is doing this. But as we saw last week, God shows His love to believers in three primary ways. He pours out his blessings in present material blessings yes that's the smallest part of how he shows his love to you but also in present spiritual blessings and in future spiritual blessings. and although life may seem dreary, God's future restoration is coming. if you ever question God's love you simply need to look back no farther than the cross. remember Romans eight chapter chapter eight verse thirty two it says, if God did not spare His own Son for us, how will He not also with Him, His Son, freely give us all things? Whoever questioned, hey God, where are you at? Where's all these things you're supposed to be given to me? God says, look back no farther than what I did for you on the cross. Did I not give you My Son and lay down My Son's life for you? You didn't deserve it. You question God's love, you go back to the cross. For Israel, it was that they needed to look back to the the Exodus from Egypt and the, and the promises and the the, uh, the great powers that God had shown them that way. So there will be times when you feel as if God doesn't love you, but when that happens, simply remember the cross. Secondly, we should never question God's election, God's electing ability or his, elect, his electing power in a condemnatory way. So God, why did you choose this person over this person? Why didn't you choose my brother or my sister? Okay, perhaps, perhaps uh, one of your close relatives or co-workers has gone to be uh, gone to eternity, and they didn't accept Christ. And, and perhaps we could say, God, why didn't you choose them? We look at this doctrine of election and we think. You know why didn't God choose this person to, to salvation? But really, what we should ask is why did God choose us? That's the question we should ask. Not why did He not choose someone else to, to to come into His glory, but why did He choose us? Were we worthy of His choice, of His love, of of the sacrifice of His Son? In any way? No, God chose you before you were born. God chose you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says. And God chose you on the basis of His mercy. Not on anything you had done. You weren't even born when He chose you. And not anything that you would have done. Not on any works so that no one can boast. He chose you on the basis of His own mercy. So the question should not be, well, why can't He choose somebody else? Why didn't He choose somebody else? The question should be, why did He choose us? We all deserve a punishment, an eternal hell. But instead, God gave us, the few, the, the, the chosen of Him, um, the benefit of receiving His eternal life. So what should our response be to God's sovereign election and faithfulness to us? I think that our, our response to it should be reflected in our honor of Him his name, his, his practices, his his uh, his values. And that happens through proper individual and corporate worship. That is what our passage discusses next week when we look at chapter one, verse six through chapter two, verse nine, the second dispute. We're going to look at at our proper response to this love, this choice of us that God has. If God shows favor to, to, to us, despite our wretched state. And why do we not show favor to God in light of His great worth? That's the point that we will look at, or that's the question that we're going to look at next week. Because, as verse five says, God will be exalted in the nations; He will be exalted by all. Will you be a part of it even now? Are, are you grateful for God's choice of you, or do you feel in some way that that He was obligated to do so? Because Perhaps you look a little bit better than this pagan neighbor of yours. And yeah, I mean, I I don't blame God for choosing me. That's not it at all. We were all worthy of God's wrath, and yet God chose us. It's an amazing thing to think about God's election of us and His love for us. And our response should be a loving and and overflowing uh, willingness to do as He asks. We'll talk about that more next week. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, when we consider Your love for us, Your choice of us, and we recognize that, that uh, there was nothing that we could have done to earn Your favor, the only thing that we can come up with is how can it be? how could You save a soul like us? A soul that was so wretched and evil and destined for hell. How could You do it? We are amazed at Your grace and Your love for us. And we want to see as many people as possible join in salvation that we enjoy. So we pray that you give us grace to spread the word that we would be the means by which you bring many to Christ. Lord, we admit that there are times when we fail to love you as we should, and there are times when we question your love for us. It seems as if you are far away. It seems as if you do not love us. Pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes on the cross and on what Jesus Christ did for us. How could You spare from us anything when You have sacrificed for us Your Son? Nothing greater could be done. In fact, that's what John says in his epistle. There is no greater than love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And yet, not only did Jesus do that, He did it for His enemy. He did it for someone who was or many people who are unlovely, who hated Him, who were opposed to Him. There's no greater love that can be displayed to us than His love for us on the cross. And so we pray that You'd help us not to force You to pour out more blessings on us or to, to demand that You give us better. There is nothing better than being in the love of Christ. And we pray that You'd help us to recognize that as we Reflect on Your Word as we sing praises to You throughout the week. We reflect on uh, the grace that You've shown to us and the promises that You have for us. May You be honored in how we respond to Your Word this evening so that You would be pleased of our service and that we would be vessels fit for Your use. Pray in Jesus' name, Amen.